Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here with guest co-host, Benji Davis. How you doing, Benji? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Hello, Macomb Teacher's Lounge podcast. Let's do it. Wow, that's so much more energy than okay. I, well, Alan, I that's why that. Alan's there not here. There's a little bit of what we call Kavana in that answer, by the way. Yeah. Well, I guess he's. that's why Alan's away this week for Hanukkah, to recharge his energy to be a more enthusiastic uh, co-host. Uh, our, our topic for today are, is the new, new Israel-Moroccan normalization deal. Uh, Benji, would you introduce our guest to discuss this exciting topic? So our guest is Walid Tamtam, Canadian-born Moroccan Muslim Zionist, who Mike and I met actually um, recently, a few months ago, because Mike and I are involved with a student-led movement on college campuses all over the world to reimagine Israel education. And Mike and I led two educational cohorts uh, for this group of about 35 students uh, from eight different countries. And so one of our students, in, who's actually in Mike's cohort, was Walid. And we got to know Walid, and he has a lot of really smart things to say, and he is super connected to Morocco and super connected to Israel. So when we thought who should be a guest, it was really a no-brainer. So Walid, welcome to the pod. We're so happy to have you, and can't wait to learn with you. Thank you so much. The experiences at Rimon Court was amazing. Learned so much, engaged so much, and I can't wait to, to get into it today. Well, Benji said you were a student, but there were times where I felt like you were co-teaching, where I would just sit back and let you go about <laughs> history or background or, or pol- political ideology. Uh, I, really, I really enjoyed listening to you. So we wanted to hear first just a little bit about your background, a little bit about your story. I think our listeners would be interested. And then to help us unpack as a, as a, uh, a Moroccan what the deal means to you. So can you give us just a little background and why you call yourself a Zionist if your family's from Morocco? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, you know, my story is I wasn't born that way. Absolutely not. I was born Moroccan. I was born Canadian, but I wasn't born a Zionist um, based on my description. And and for me, it it was a story of journey of of being much more educated. And, and, you know, lo and behold, it happened to be more about being educated by my my own country's history, the Jewish population within those borders and and everything around that. And for me, understanding more about Jewish people and Israel and and the warm cohort when we went through, um, you know, the past few months where it was an opportunity for me to continue to engage with that. And so the idea of me kind of co-teaching or really engaging a lot was all about trying to give my perspective because I think a lot of people can share Mm -hmm. but my story has you know you were born one way in one echo chamber and for whatever you know identity reasons or people you're surrounded by and you don't get to choose unfortunately but you can do get to choose what you read and what you engage with and uh, eventually uh, change for me Um, so So what um, got you out of that echo chamber I think what got me out of that echo chamber for me is just being able to understand who Jewish people were not just like another religious group but also who they are ethnically and their connection to the land to be able to see more humanity in that people and be able to to want to engage more with the information surrounding them and their stories because their narrative obviously will be much different obviously as we know but for me what what gave me the interest and the reason to, to explore that narrative was because I felt like I had a connection to a certain portion of that group of people because you know we're all Moroccan at the end of the day so for me that bridge uh, that human bridge was what I needed to to humanize and to, to to bridge the educational gap at, at some point. And once I did that, I was able to understand, you know, the nuances of Israel, Zionism, 
And therefore, you know, be called a Zionist. Now, for me, obviously, being connected to Morocco, not Israel, I mean, you know, why would you be called yourself a Zionist? Well, that's the same thing as anyone in this post-Zionist world. It's the idea that uh, Israel's right to exist is questioned so much and so rigorously that, you know, it's a reaction. It's uh, saying that, oh, it does have the right to exist, and here's why. And so that's why I go out and call myself a Zionist, even in Arab Muslim spaces where maybe it wouldn't be as fond of as elsewhere, but I think there's a, a very good narrative and a very good a reason to do so because it's all about educating people and uh, to move us forward. But what you're describing isn't common in that Arab Muslim community. Well, the story of myself and how I overcame isn't common, but it's based off a blueprint and based off an environment that is common. The echo chamber that's toxic towards Israel is common, as we know. And the idea of how we overcome it is, I mean, how I overcame it wasn't anything special. Was I looked at my own history, I looked at my own people's history, and then I humanized, I educated. So I think that for me, and what keeps me engaged in this field so passionately is wanting to kind of create a, to recreate that blueprint and to offer it out to other people. So for me, with the Rimon cohort, it gave me a very good model of how you can have virtual educational programs, which is you know absolutely amazing with the way you guys did it. But for me, starting up in January, I'll actually have my own cohort called Morzine, a Moroccan Zionist program that will be having uh, that you know teaches Jewish Moroccan education, uh, Moroccan identity, Israeli identity, Zionism, and all that stuff around that. And for me, being able to use that common culture, history, background, and identities is a great great you know gap bridger um for that field you know it gives not only people the opportunity to learn and to actually you know engage in the subject but also a reason why to i mean why would you spend your time on a sunday and and you know from 12 to 2 p.m and you know so it's, it's all about you know using that blueprint that really connects to my personal story are you trying to engage other moroccan muslims absolutely uh- that's, that's actually the majority of our students, actually. So I had over 100 students sign up in the first few weeks of, of having that sign-up form. We're not, like, without even much flyers or social media, out of all social media type activity, it's actually mostly contacting friends, uh, and, and they contact other people, and, and we go through a like, recruiting system, and we look at the, what they have to say, and uh, they, we pull them, we get some information. So, we, yeah, we have a Muslim majority, um, um, you know, population dealing with uh, Zionism in Israel. And, and now with this normalization deal, and I'm very glad it happened, and I'll obviously speak more about it uh, briefly later um, it, there's just so much more uh, reasons to engage that subject because a lot more people have sparked their interest recently because of, of this current event so mm-hmm. we can't wait to see that it's happen. more relevant now it very much is relevant. I mean, it's been relevant before because, I mean, back in November, right. November 5th is when the Moroccan government announced that they would be instituting Jewish Moroccan education in, in you know, what they would call their, you know, past primary school. So basically like grade five and six equivalent for us in America and Canada. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me, you know, opening up that mind into Jewish education probably told me that you know, there might be a shift coming soon uh, politically about, about Israel that uh, goes along parallel with that uh, educational measure. So, and here we are, the, you know, <laughs> Uh, with the Israel-Morocco normalization about uh, a week ago. So, it's great. Now, you're, you're still not explaining why you are different. I mean, what what makes this Wally different than other people in your community? What, what, you're saying, well, it was just simple. I just educated myself and I stepped out of the echo chamber. Was well, there a moment? What, what, yeah. It was, I mean, wasn't a moment. I mean, for me, I, I, I can't pinpoint it to one moment, one event, one place. It was, it was, it was a process. For me, I think the moment com- was when I did that publicly, right? It's like seeing what I see on social media and finding a way to articulate myself. I mean, for me, it's about my social media literacy that allowed me to be a little bit more public with it because at least, you know, I want to be able to deliver an effective message before I want to, you know, be public with something, you know? Uh, I want to be able to learn to swim before I dip my feet in the water, basically, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, So for me, what I'm different, what I'm unique is that I would say 
because I know what because there's not many people like me, and because that you know as a result of where the the political status quo has been, as a result of the you know the the Arab League, Arab world, the thoughts of Israel, and the and the, the kind of the inability to make peace between uh, you know Jews and Arabs uh, at many times of history. Is, is is you know that that opportunity that I fit I, I feel like I I'm not like many other people is what kind of makes me more like not like other people like I I want to, I want to like pass the point where not only do I change the way I'm thinking but I'm changing the way that other people are thinking as well and because there aren't other people thinking like me that's a reaction is my you know willing to engage and to be public about it all I think the one key thing that makes me very unique is I have a mix of a few things first of all my family environment is absolutely great and open minded you know we had family sorry sorry, sorry sorry my my, my, my family environment my family environment uh-huh. so at home like for example my parents my grandparents lived among you know Jewish populations in Morocco for long as they've been around in Morocco so that kind of gave me an opportunity to be much more free within my you know my own bubble at home and that's very important because a lot of times that will be lacking and it's a very very important important thing because the last so thing your family do, was cool with it and you decided talking about these things and feeling these things they're absolutely. like oh Walid interesting that you're a Zionist actually that's not something we're against even though like our what you're saying is our communal echo chamber perhaps is not so comfortable with things that you're feeling and believing yeah you know especially when I have conversations with family and family friends and people around me close to my circle you know that really matter um, you know for me the understanding of what I'm trying to do and what I'm doing at the, at the root is something actually they appreciate very much um, but of course you know <laughs> at your own discretion at your own risk of course but um, but no that's having that support and being able to have a safe environment just within my own bubble is, is very effective because I don't if I had, didn't have that I would really rethink me doing that I mean the, the price I'd have to pay versus the reward it, it, it wouldn't that calculate would not add up to where I am today and so the reward has always been uh, being able to you know retain that safe environment in my own space but also being able to see change in other spaces uh, for the better uh, the way I see it so I just think the blend of the, the family environment my educational background over the years and my willing to engage with subjects you know openly for or against I think all those ingredients together make me who I am. Of course, I'm still discovering it, to be honest. The more I, I go mm-hmm. about and the more I challenge myself, the more I, I engage with the field, the more I kind of continue to define myself and I get better at explaining who I am and how I got to who I am. But uh, it really comes down to, to those key factors. Is I have a good environment at home. Uh, you know, I, I know how to learn things. Uh, you know, I've always been a pretty well-off educated, um, you know, kid in the house. I've always been, you know, done my homework on time, on target. <laughs> so with all of that, I think um, I, I don't have any significant blockage other than myself. Nothing else is stopping mm. me externally. So because of that, because I have enough freedom within myself, within my own bubble, I, I had enough space to, to get to where I am now. Do you still have family in Morocco? And have you visited there? Absolutely. I visited about... Uh, about four years ago, so like uh, beginning of high school, and absolutely have plenty of family there, plenty of family over the world, and it's a pretty diasporic community, but uh, also uh, plenty of family back home, and, and, uh, and they all uh, have different reactions to, to the recent news, for sure. <laughs> yes, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of them are, are, are very, you know, they're actually pretty much very positive reactions, actually. What I, what I say is different is for some people, they feel like... Um, they're worried about around them. It's not just about their family, but it's also about you know who they're living with, their neighborhood, their people. Uh, most of them are are, are kind of in, in two key roads. It's one side is like, okay, this is great. You know, Israel Morocco had relations for a while. Uh, you know, this is just when it's a, an opportunity to get back to where we were before and maybe a little bit ahead. So it's like you know, not not a big deal. Not going to go through it too much. And then there's not a group of people that um, the whole Western Sahara equation of this deal kind of overrided everything for them. Where this, the focus is no longer Israel Morocco and current events. It's the Western 
Western Sahara and American recognition and the idea of you know uniting Morocco into to one country. So there there is that equation, and and that's not just my family. That's that's everyone in Morocco. There's the the, the nationalist base that are very much keen on the Western Sahara first and foremost. You know Morocco first, as any other nationalist would put it, and then also the the Israel deal somehow fits in the equation. You know that doesn't get talked about as much. Um, and then there's, of course, but the, isn't but isn't isn't aren't there people in Morocco who aren't happy with this deal? They're, absolutely, it can't be universally absolutely. Lo- beloved. No, 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 for sure, for sure, and especially not yeah. uh, you know in, in the Muslim country, uh, you know, given the political circumstances. I think uh, right now, so obviously that, that that deal was just initiated by the King of Morocco, but there's obviously the kingdom, but there's also the the, the Moroccan Parliament, the Moroccan government, uh, which is elected, um, you know, and, and the current party is actually the Islamist Party. Now, Islamist parties exist all over the Arab and Muslim world, and the Islamist parties mm-hmm. aren't very fond of Israel. And I mean, they, they, they're very much sacred on the Palestinian cause. They feel like any normalization or any deal with Israel is completely against that. And because of that, the, the, the Prime Minister of almost, he's, he's been put in a very awkward spot. His name is Saeed Othmani, actually. He's from the, the hometown of, of my father, actually. Um, but, Wait, which uh, is where? Uh, in Agadir, Sousse area, it's like the south part of Morocco, the south Berber okay. region, Agadir, um, and all those other beach cities in, in, in the west coast. Um, so what kind of happened now with this, you know, this deal is the king has laid a ticking time bomb in the office of the prime minister that he has to find some way to deal with his own party's base, his own supporters that are very much the most anti-Israel within all of the Moroccan political spectrum, you know. Um, so... And That's, the Senate obviously can't veto the king. They have absolutely, to figure absolutely. out a way to make it work. It's, it's, the, king, the king above all. That's how it is. It's, uh, right. it's as we say in Morocco, Aisha Medic, long live the king, the king first. Uh, from the national anthem, from the way people think, it's very much that's the ultimate power. Um, and so it, it really is uh, funny and, and interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, for example, just uh, a day or two ago, there was reports of, you know, a few people coming out to protest, but there was, you know, all police lined up all prepared, all ready to deal with it. So I really think that there, there definitely is a rejection, but it, it won't have a significant effect to, to throw off this deal off the table or to, you know, to roll Morocco's foreign policy back at all, especially considering all the benefits Morocco has received. I think it, it will be either one of two things. The, the, the anti-Israel side won't have enough power to, to do much, or the anti-Israel side will be drowned in the pro-Western Sahara nationalist, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ideals. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a really good equation that the, the king has made. You know, even with the Islamist party existing under underneath his power, um, he's been able to, to put everything in the right place where, you know, there really is no significant mono base that will try and, and, and kill th- this, this, this progress. So I'm very happy to say that as well. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit the dynamic? So the king is all powerful and the prime minister and the parliament what power do they have as in um what could they do to... You're saying they couldn't do anything to oppose this if the king decides and that's what happens. Well, I mean, uh, look, that, that's putting it that's putting it without too much context, to be honest. Uh, I mean, there's... Which I know context. nothing about, which is why... <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so Morocco, I mean, Morocco is what we call, by, by definition, by out of the textbook, is a, you know, a, a constitutional monarchy. Now, how does that really play out in reality? It, it, it's how I described it. The king has ultimate power and uh, the government somehow has to fit within that based on what, they, what the king does right so if, if this is the foreign policy the modern state by the way isn't isn't ancient i mean the modern state is modern right 
Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what I'm trying to say here is basically, you know, if, if the king is moving to normalize with Israel, then the question no longer is, is ro- like, you know, deny that, reject that. It's like, okay, now how do we find a way to, like, you know, politically wage support for the Palestinians to try and equate, you know, because you, you, you can't go against that. That's, that's, that. that's where the ultimate power is. That's first and foremost. But as far as domestic issues, how they manage the military, I mean, they, they get mandates from the king. To, you know, to establish certain things, and they also get mandates from the people, probably being more mandates from the king than the actual people, which is why we lack that ability to call ourselves a genuine democracy, even with elections and some more civil liberties that you'll have elsewhere in North Africa and the Middle East. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the notion. The, the king and his kingdom and his people and his entourage have ultimate power, both you know, by law, by, by constitution, but also by how things play out in the real world. So that's kind of how it the works. Western name, the Western name is Morocco. Mm-hmm. But do, what do Moroccans call it? Maghreb, Morocco. Yeah. Say it again. Maghreb, Maghreb. That's that's how they call it. Morocco. I mean, Morocco, Maghreb, Mahok. It's just based on the influence. There's actually a lot of ways to call it Morocco, Morocco, because of that colonial influence. You know, the Spanish controlled yeah. the north, the French controlled. I mean, until you know. the 1970s, right? Absolutely. So when did the Spanish leave? Yeah. No, no. So, so the French were the last uh, colonial influence ah, the in Morocco. French. The 50, in 1956. Yeah, I'm, I'm no expert. <laughs> it's all good. But there, no, there's wealthy influence there. I mean, Maghreb is you know more of the I guess you'd say the Arabized way of saying it. So that I mean, there's there's plenty of ways. To Based on the colonial influence. And that means the West? Maghreb? Yeah, what does it mean? Maghreb is like the, the actual region of, of, of that land. So, Maghreb, the, the actual that Maghreb. Western North Africa. Yeah, absolutely. The Western right. the Maghreb actually is the land that spans from Morocco to Algeria, Tunisia. I thought but, it was know. most of North Africa would be considered the Maghreb, like outside of like Egypt and maybe parts of Libya. Outside I of Egypt and parts of Libya. Yeah, you are right. You yeah. are right, actually. So, no. So, the Maghreb spans from, from Morocco until uh, the parts of uh, Western Libya. Pretty much. Right. Nice. So I, I still know a little from my Middle East Studies degree. Go George Washington University. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and, um, okay, if we, can we go into the, the Western Sahara bit? Cause, well, before we do that, I still want to, I still, before oh, we get yeah. to the Western Sahara, I just want to, just, I, I think, listen, our listeners now that Israel has a normal relationship, I think there's things that most people don't know about Morocco that right. I think are... Our, who's our new friend, right? So, can you explain about Arabs and Berbers? Oh, right, nice. How- <laughs> yeah, can you please do that? <laughs> Absolutely, and, that, and that's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. You know what? If if if, the, if you're gonna if you're gonna make Moroccans mad as as, as an Israeli, is it's gonna be because of the politics. But if you if you go in that identity space, it's, you're really gonna find a whole new level of an enemy. Um, so that's that's definitely something I think Israelis uh, should be well, more aware of. That's the thing. Of. I mean, things from the outside always look so homogenous, but really Absolutely. it breaks down much more complex. So I think people should understand. The different ethnicities and languages, even no, the absolutely different languages, languages yeah. and ethnicities. So I'll, I'll get into that actually. So first and foremost, Morocco's native population, starting with the, the first peoples, are, are the Amazigh people. Now, these Amazigh people are, are a group of people. Say it again slowly. The Amazigh people. Amazigh. Okay. Um, so people call it in the West. People call them Berbers because that's the name the French gave them, and that's the name other colonial powers uh, gave them because you know. Is Berber a negative name? Is it negative? Absolutely. It, it, it's negative because oh. of, of its origins. Absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, like they will be called See, I Berbers. Didn't know that. Berber, me I would say, for me, for me, from the outside of Morocco, so the, the, abroad, right? The Berber um, okay. is like. It's based on a negative term, but it's probably the more popular term to use. But Amazigh is the more accurate term. And I guess as people interact with that population more and more and get to know them and, you know, they'll probably, you know, switch the paradigm on how they, they, they describe them. So they're the native huh. people. They have like about 10,000 years uh, of 
you know, known presence on that land, for, and, and in a land called Tamaza, which is like, you know, modern day Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and also parts of Libya. Uh, and uh, there are definitely Arabs in North Africa. They're the minority through Islamic conquests, you know, 1,400 mm-hmm. years ago. And, you know, today they make up the, the elite class of people in that land. But the land itself and the majority of the populations are Amazigh people. So if you want to describe them as who they are, not their nationality, but that's, that's how you go about doing it. And I think for a lot of people in, in this day and age where, you know, identities are things we talk about much more openly. Sure. With, so many, with people, like, I mean, with people from different identities, you know, like, like we're, mm-hmm. we're really sharing this conversation much more than we did before. So I think for Israelis, want to understand, you know, the non-Moroccan Israelis, because I'm pretty sure the Moroccans know pretty well, but the, the rest of okay. Israel... Right, the, the the other six million, you know, Jewish population, the other, you know, two million, uh, you know, um, yeah. those are the people who who have to be a little bit more tone sensitive to this because there's like it's not an identity crisis at all. I don't want to call it that because that's not the right thing to say. But I would say it's it's very much a a campaign to take back, you know, who they are and to to try and decolonize uh, their identities and, and their, their notions. You know, more people want to learn the Amazigh language. These, and, sorry. These different ethnicities live together very peacefully. Absolutely, Morocco, absolutely. Right? There isn't a lot of, and even and the Jews also were just seen as another ethnicity. In fact, as opposed to most of the Arab world, where the Jews were forced to flee in '48, aren't there still like small Jewish communities in Morocco? Yes, there's. A, I mean, we're seeing the numbers about like two thousand five hundred to three thousand. Uh, you know, Jews yeah. who currently live in Morocco, primarily Casablanca, which is Morocco's biggest city, as we know. So it kind of makes sense there. And uh, you know, they live within their, their, their certain communities. I mean, they they have a, a you know a, a chief rabbi. Um, who I can't remember the name at the moment, um, and they, they have okay. they have a complete. I don't community. think he listens to the podcast. Actually, okay. actually, I think I think Yosef Pinto. I think I want to say it was. Uh, it could have. That does kind of sound familiar. But there were um, two hundred fifty thousand Jews in Morocco in nineteen forty eight. So it's just yeah. like the whole notion of yeah. tolerance of Jews. Yes, in terms of Arab well, he, Muslim he, he, countries of the Middle East, Morocco. I think has the largest population of Jews actually in exactly. Arab country has the Absolutely largest right. population of Jews and then there's Tunisia which maybe has 1500 Jews and mostly live on an island of Jerba Zerba, right Zerba, yeah. sorry you know I'm not going to pronounce okay. it right <laughs> yeah. and then there's Jews obviously in non-Arab uh, Muslim countries Turkey and Iran which probably number about five to 10,000 in Turkey maybe 15 to 20 in Iran um, so yes, which aren't Arab hand, countries, but aren't but, 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 but Muslim countries. Morocco is considered an Arab country because of its status in the Arab League, obviously, and because of its control. Right. The king is considered it's politically Arab. Arab. I mean, politically Arab, exactly. Yeah. But as far as the Middle East and North Africa, which we can try and you know suck in Iran, and we can try and suck in Morocco in the equation, it actually had the largest population in all our world uh, ultimately. So hmm. at, at peak, it was the 1940s when it had its largest population. Actually, it was about 265,000 to about 300,000 uh, Jews living in Morocco all at the same time. Obviously, they have both Sephardic and Mizrahi ancestry, and they they, they have a, you know a very very special and rich culture. They have over two thousand years of of, yeah. of of presence in that land, consecutive presence in that land, um, you know, for for better or worse. And I think for, at a very very consequential period of time, those you know the thirties, the forties, the fifties, you know, under three consecutive kings, you know, until now, um, it's it's been pretty good, pretty good. But then again, you have to also recognize the equation regionally that the bar is set pretty low when it comes to treatments of Jews in, right. in Arab Muslim yep. countries, unfortunately, unfortunately. But still, to this day, it is very much a source of Moroccan pride for all Moroccans that coexistence happened successfully, hmm. continues to happen, and will continue to happen at even more uh, various things, um, hopefully. And uh, so that's, that's a really good thing. I mean, for example, I'll get into a small little, you know, quote, King Muhammad V mm-hmm. um, was a very significant um, figure in Jewish-Muslim coexistence and, and Moroccan history as well. He was a sultan mm-hmm. who was, you know, 
exiled, came back from Madagascar to Morocco, came, decolonized, no more French, took control. But at the time he had to be under the French and the Vichy government, which is obviously the French Nazi-backed government who wanted to get the Jews in Morocco to, to migrate to Europe. Um, he, he rejected that notion. He said there are no Jews in Morocco. There are no Jewish citizens. There are only Moroccan citizens. So he basically engulfed mm-hmm. all Moroccans into, you know, kind of uh, kind of replaced the the identity class and everything with just one <coughs> national class, which is, you know, sort of some people call it assimilation, but I I, I call it given the context at the time, uh, you know, protection, and that's kind of how many, 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 many people see it, which is why you can go to many Sephardic schools, even in the West, even in Toronto, up in Canada, where you'd actually learn about this king in in school. You can, you know, there's students who present about him because there's a very inspirational story around him, uh, because that, that that starting that coexistence really kept Morocco in a in a healthier place, whereas perhaps in Algeria and uh, in Libya and Egypt that that, that same notion and, and protection did not exist. Uh, therefore, um, the history unfolded drastically different for for, for the worst, uh, the way I see it. And the Moroccan government's been technically at a state of war with Israel, but it's been a pretty warm relationship under the table, and even getting more and more outward, you know, more public until now, this normalization step is like, but really there wasn't really much of a conflict uh, on the contrary. So what I'll say is once upon a time there absolutely was that conflict because not not necessarily at the root but just on the world stage, you know the side we support publicly, the side we support quiet, Mm -hmm. I mean for example in the 60s, officially officially in the 50s and 60s, Morocco was the enemy of of Israel, but Mm -hmm. I mean I would say for me, the way, the, 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 the time I, I, I tell myself that Morocco and Israel were no longer war, but actually were allies. Or it's 1965. Because 1965, something really key happened. Is Of course, you know, there was Mossad cooperation with the, the Kingdom of Morocco for you know, the longest time. 1961, obviously, as we know, in November, the Yachin project happened, which migrated 97,000 Jews from Morocco to, to Israel. And, uh, you know, it was drastic, uh, you know, cooperation had to happen in order to make that successful because that's just how big the populations were and how they have to, mm-hmm. you know, migrate everyone safely because, you know, there, there were times and places where they were definitely a danger, you know, riots happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get more to that later if we want, but um, that, that cooperation was, was a thing between Mossad, which is Israel's main, you know, external security um, uh, agency. So in 1965, there was a meeting in Casablanca, an Arab League meeting that included both Egypt and Jordan's uh, leaders at the time. What King Hassan II of Morocco, and that leader basically, that, uh, excuse me, that uh, that uh, meeting between these leaders basically indicated to the King of Morocco that uh, the Arabs had a divided frontier, they were ill-prepared for the, you know, what was the 67 Six-Day War, or where he tipped off uh, Israel's Mossad agency. They, they kind of, you know, they had mics in that room um, of, of, of what was happening, what was being said, and uh, he sent over transcripts uh, to, to, to Mossad, and that's kind of uh, one of the uh, tips of intel that helped uh, Israel in the 67 Six-Day War. And uh, and from that point on, there's always been cooperation under the table, just like that. Uh, and uh, you know, it really hasn't. Uh, and surprisingly, so it really hasn't um, pissed off nor the local population or or other countries <laughs> in the region. It's, I, I I I'm amazed. Even though people know about it, you mean? A, a, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the only point of time that I can think about that really, you know, that things really pissed off, uh, you know, someone in the region or Moroccans. It was 1980 when when Syria pulled out their embassy. From, from Morocco and you know uh, when, when, when King Hassan II had, had a meeting with Shimon Peres and that was that was really it for me the, but the cooperation between Morocco and Israel and the Jewish population and everything else has really I mean looking back at it it really seems uh, the most productive thing possible so for me when the UAE deal happened back you know a few months ago with Israel I felt really jealous because they had Mo Ben Zayad of the Emirates you know trying to take our place as the, the bridge between the Jewish and Arab Muslim world like, mm-hmm. uh, you know I want that's our place it's our territory and here we are regaining it finally you know uh, a couple months later, but uh, it's great to see. It's great to see. 
Okay, so uh, I, we're running out of time, and I feel like I feel really bad because Benji had a question earlier about the recognition of Western Sahara as part of Morocco. Can you give us the the insight? Because it's it's hard to understand the conflict itself, I, let alone. I think we need first. If we do this quickly. A a background, like what does that mean that Western Sahara that people say it's occupied? Like who's occupied there and whose land? What are the claims on the land? And then. The positions within Morocco um, for or against it, and who's for and against it. So, and, and so maybe many, your take also, by the way, what you think. So, I mean, my take is the notion that uh, you know, I believe that land should be all under Moroccan sovereignty. For the notion that Morocco, you know, has has been able to control that land and, and deal with the aspirations of the, of the majority of the population of that land today. The majority of the population are Moroccan citizens, uh, with a small minority of, of Sahrawis, who are, are, are a rejection of, of the state of, of of Morocco, which I believe is is more of an Algeria foreign backed you know, decision, less of a self-determination claim. Um, but to understand the context is that land was actually occupied by Spain until 1967. Um, it was, you know, on a list of self-governing territories before that until, like, you know, 63. And, and Morocco made a demand to that land. And, and since then, you know, whether or not certain countries in the world recognize whatever uh, sovereignty claim there is, uh, Morocco basically controls like about 80% of the territory by, by occupation. And, um, you know, until America's recognition, they really haven't, um, you know, fully expressed and exercised all the momentum they have in their support. The truth is, um, you know, the, the Sahrawi side or the Polisario Front, as they call themselves, the Algeria-backed front. And you'll notice that they're Algerian-backed just from the flag, you know. Uh, their flag is, is very much a Palestinian flag with an Algerian. What does that even mean, the Polisario Front? Right? I the, po- don't the, the Polisario Front are like the, 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 the military that represents the, you know, the political entity that represents the, the Sahrawi people. The PLO of the Sahrawis? <laughs> no, kind of. So they're like they're like a Sahrawi national movement, and um, they 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 they're basically the ones who who are, I mean, yeah, basically the PLO. It's very much is a PLO, and actually they have the same. They have the Palestinian flag with an Algerian crescent and a star. Um, so they basically, if you took the the, the star and crescent from the Algerian flag and pasted it onto a Palestinian flag, that's what they have because they're really much playing with that political intersectionality, very much. Um, so yeah, so once 1975 passed, Spain you know relinquished all like the administration control they have on the territory. And it was really up until, you know, Morocco and uh, the this, this Sahrawi movement. Now, they're very much losing the, the diplomacy battle. They're losing the relations. They don't have very much support other than Algeria. I mean, there was an actual, there was actual warfare, right? Absolutely, there was warfare. But and yeah. up until recently, I mean, we've had about, you know, a good two and a half, three decades of, of ceasefire until about uh, a mm-hmm. month ago, back in early November. Uh, when, uh, you know, there's some protesters with the Sahrawi variety, you know, blocking the border of, of between Mauritania and Gurgaret. Gurgaret is the city that, no, bear, you know, in the Western Sahara, Moroccan territory, that borders Mauritania. So if that city is closed off, and Algeria obviously is closed off with Morocco, then Morocco is basically mm-hmm. on an island, you know. it's it, they, they can't mm-hmm. ship things back and forth. They can't deal economically. So, of course, they had to intervene. And once they intervened, they gave an opportunity um for conflict and also give an opportunity for countries to show their position, to express their position. Do they support Morocco's right. operation? And that, that was that was like about two weeks worth of news. It was what country was supporting us, what country wasn't supporting us. So it was a lot of the countries in the world, Azerbaijan, um, you know, um, France, uh, Belgium, Czech Republic. Obviously, all these Azerbaijan countries. was supporting Morocco. 
Absolutely. I mean, many other countries around the world are, are, are pledging their support for Morocco's operation in Gurgaret. Uh, many African countries, especially because, you know, given the economic relationship between Morocco and the rest of Africa, which is, you know, very key to, to, to retain with that uh, military operation. Um, and so, you know, that gave an opportunity to, for people to express their sides. Now, here's another interesting thing to, to, to you know, remember, as the, the month previous and, and that month as well, November, is when uh, the Palestinian Authority sent an ambassador to Algeria. Right, they sent an ambassador to Algeria, and that ambassador um, actually pledged support for Algeria in that conflict, which basically threatened Morocco's territorial sovereign claims in that mm-hmm. land. Uh, Mor- Al Palestinian Authority was actually the only Arab political ent- entity to actually pledge support for for you know the anti Morocco side as as we see it, mm-hmm. and also it, they broke a very you know sacred rule within the Arab League, the idea that one Arab nation should not be getting involved or intervening between affairs of two other Arab brotherly neighbors as they call it but of course that wasn't what happened and, and with that it, it, the nationalist base in Morocco was very pissed off um, it was really ticked off and, and for, for that I mean there really is a cooling down and what the reaction would be against uh, the normalization um, because of that you know because the Palestinian mm. government side are seen against Morocco's interest so for normalization so, like this would make sense uh, for, for, for I saw that the Palestinians were actually silent uh, about the Moroccan Israeli deal so I'm wondering maybe that relates to their position on the, the you know, recent conflicts there. I also mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, though, you talked about the, in the, Sahara, the Western Sahara area that there are Moroccan citizens living there. Are those only, um, were they like settlers in a way? Um, or are they the actual locals? As in, do the people living there, can anyone get Moroccan citizenship? Absolutely, absolutely. So both it's both made up of, of people who settled there, migrated there over the years, people who lived there forever, uh, people who migrated from the Sahrawi side over to the Moroccan side, and, and absolutely, it, it's made of all sorts, and they're all Moroccan nationals who, who you know participate like any other Moroccan nationals uh, in what we call you know fully recognized mainland Morocco up north. Um, so yeah, that's what the population is made of there, and, and I, I really much um, understand what you're talking about with the Mahmoud Abbas and, and his silence on, on this recent mobilization. And I think, of course, first and foremost, the deals between Morocco in Israel is completely different from the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan. There isn't that same human connection, that bridge, that history between these two countries. It, it, it's very uh, different of an equation. Now, of course, Abu Abbas has blasted, you know, three different leaders because of the three previous normalizations. So this might also be a mix of trying to, you know, do something new for once, you know, right, trying to change it up that. a little bit. So there's, that, that's a little bit of part of the equation for sure. And I think uh, in the case of Morocco, you know, the king of Morocco is literally the chairman of the Al-Quds Association, the association responsible for trying to keep some territorial Temple. potential in, in, in Jerusalem, right? East Jerusalem being you know the potential right, capital for the Palestinian state. state absolutely so there's just so much that plays into that equation that I mean for them to go out of their way to try and, 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 and you know attack Morocco and attack Moroccans and the Moroccan king which is a, a big national symbol um, is not in their interest because they, they need support uh, they're, they're looking for more support here they're not looking to lose anything more and I think with their normalization they're not losing very much because I mean to be honest if you really wanted to, the, to blast Morocco and Israel with having relations, I think you should be blasting the previous king, uh, not this current king, with the way and their, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, with their, with their, the mandates they followed and the things they've done, or you should be blasting the king two years ago when we when we bought the three Israeli IAR um, uh, Heron drones, you know, for a forty-eight million dollar arms deal with Israel. So there's, I mean, there's just so much between our history that, uh, you know, it's no this deal doesn't really completely shift the paradigm in any one direction. This it, it really. Pulls us out of our closet and finally makes it public, which I'm very happy about. But yeah, absolutely, the Palestinian side, um, you know, Abbas, Fatah, shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't expect them to, to try and blast or, or burn pictures of the King of Morocco anytime soon, hopefully, <laughs> for their sake, honestly. Right. Yeah, well, listen, 
Uh, we've, we've barely scratched the surface of understanding this. But I, I, think, I, think what, I think the key for listeners, and again, often our Jewish Zionist listeners don't understand the Middle East and all its complexity and all of its multi-ethnic complexity. Which, and, and the Middle East and North Africa has this rich history of both conflict, but also coexistence and learning to get together. So hopefully we're, on the, we're, we're, in, we're flipping the coin to the side of increased coexistence and increased... And, and, and Waleed, it's, it, first of all, it's always fun to listen to you, but also the energy of excitement that you have over this <laughs> is so contagious. It's yeah. just... I. I you, it is, it is. It, it's, it's contagious among my own people, actually. Because, like yeah. I said, I represent a group of people, for example, who uh, love Morocco and love and, and who pledge, you know, support for Morocco's interest. And Morocco's interest is dealing with Israel. Israel is a regional ally. I mean, think about two countries who don't have petroleum in the ground, who have to use innovation to drive its economy forward. I mean, look, no country other than Israel. And, and consider the fact that they've, you know, been threatened uh, to be destroyed by their neighbors uh, for, for, you know, multiple uh, decades. So, I mean, there's just so much we can learn from them if we cooperate and, 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 you know, actually normalize and have these deals, which is why, you know, a cha- Israeli, you know, Tel Aviv-based uh, Moroccan Chamber of Commerce that's it's opening next week. I mean, there will be so much as a result of this deal that people will more and more and more, like, flip to the Israel side. It's not going... Inshallah. Inshallah. as you guys say. But it very much <laughs> is a, a, an opportunity and a direction we're headed in that will continue to bring the countries closer, not further apart. And that's the happiest thing. I is. think so. If, at, if, if right here, right now, we're at the point where most Moroccans won't like the deal or like the deal won't have much to say on it it will only get better because the incentives the benefits and the positives that will, will be coming out in the next uh, weeks months uh, so I can't wait to see what happens There's so much more time okay and just one last tourist question please is there a place I can travel to look at the Mediterranean and the Atlantic at the same time or are those in different areas? Absolutely, there is a place. It's a city, northern That's city so cool. called uh, Tangier, Tanja, as we say. Oh, and, from uh, Tangier. Yeah, absolutely, up north and uh, a great view. I mean, there's. I mean, like I said, I mean, you know what? I wouldn't even restrict yourself to just that one aspiration. Honestly, if I were you, I'd head to somewhere like Essaouira, a Jewish-built city in Morocco, uh, or or Agadir. You know, one of the like it, it, you know, there's, there's oh, one. Oh, Agadir. There's a hamburger restaurant here called Agadir. I didn't realize that's what it was. <laughs> nice. nice. But you know, actually, I had I had a friend one time. Uh, his name is Yona actually he's Israeli he goes to um, you know I uh, believe he goes to uh, you know David Ben-Gurion University he's doing studies regarding you know Moroccan identities in yeah, Israel yeah, yeah and great. actually actually and uh, he had a really funny video he made on YouTube one time and I think your viewers can check it out in a simple search just like Jewish Morocco or Jewish Moroccan identities and you'll find the video it's the first one it's a really popular video and one time he was talking to uh, you know an Israeli and he, you know who had his Moroccan descent he was born in you know Casablanca grew up there for a little bit moved to Israel made Aliyah and you know he was talking that interview. He was like, you know, oh, I'm Israeli. My kids are Israeli. I'm proud Israeli. And and then he learned more about his story. He was like a religious Zionist, which is why he initially moved to, to Jerusalem. But the interview was actually happening in Tel Aviv. It's like, so like, why do you live in Tel Aviv? And it's like, oh, you know, it reminds me of the beach in Casablanca. You know, so there's like that that, that nostalgia <laughs> still exists to this day. And right. so there's so much um, there to unpack. There's so much there that still you know hasn't been fully revived that uh, I'm sure the Israeli population that will be pouring into Morocco absolutely more than they ever will before be. Um, yep. will be able to you know to work with and, and uh, yeah so that's great I mean unlike the Emirates or Bahrain and Sudan which is, are, are great moves as well um, there's there's something you left behind that you need to, to take a look at for sure if you're a Jewish Moroccan and if you're like any other Israeli there's much more you can see that uh, might speak to your own history might speak to your own yeah. uh, interests well, well, thanks for helping us unpack it, and I, I hope to hear more from you. And you know, keep in touch with us as things go on. And who knows, maybe maybe we could meet 
in Tangier and Casablanca for some coffee and hang out and you can show us show us the sights. Absolutely. I'd say let's in Tel Aviv first. Uh, I, I can't wait I can't wait I can't wait to get to Israel the next couple months which is a plan of mine so if that happens I'd love to definitely meet up coffee's and, and on us buddy uh, I'd love us. it I'd love it thank you so much <laughs> okay thanks right, well, thank you again Waleed thank you Benji and you don't have to log off guys but I'm gonna let's stop the recording because it's the end of the episode bye bye